My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. The best of the times in the sense for investors, not consumers, that the industry and frankly society has underinvested in productive capacity around natural resources for a very long time, 20 or 30 years. At the same time that uh, policy prescriptions are constraining capital to natural resource companies. The worst of the times in the sense that um, costs are rising for the industry and there's a recession looming. So I think investors are right to be cautious in the near term and very bullish in the long term. On this episode of What the Finance Podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming on Rick Rule, who's a former president and CEO of Sprott US Holdings uh, with decades of experience in the commodities business. So Rick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Anthony, thank, thank you for having me on. Pardon me, my, my throat. That's okay, no problem. And I really look forward to uh, talking with you. I've been listening to your videos for years. Uh, so I guess I thought it'd be a good place to start. If you could maybe go over your current thoughts on what you're seeing in, in the commodities market. And I guess you can sort of touch on the industries you think are really relevant at the moment sort of reminds me of tale of two cities the best of times and the worst of times the best of the times in the sense for investors not consumers that the industry and frankly society has underinvested in productive capacity around natural resources for a very long time 20 or 30 years at the same time that uh, policy prescriptions are constraining capital to natural resource companies. The worst of the times in the sense that um, costs are rising for the industry and there's a recession looming. So I think investors are right to be cautious in the near term and very bullish in the long term. I I suspect it depends on who you are and what your timeframes are. Sorry for that long-winded answer, Anthony. Uh, It's odd too for me at age 70 with less time on earth that because of experience, I'm more patient, I think, in five-year terms and six-year terms, <clears throat> while the 25-year-old Rick, with lots of time left on Earth, thought in three-month terms or six-month terms. <clears throat> For me, there's a certain certainty in the outcomes. Um, despite the wishes of the big thinkers, the world is short of energy, so energy prices, including conventional energy, will stay high for a very long time. <clears throat> Base metals prices will be high too, uh, perhaps constrained by a recession between now and five years ago. But if you have an investment orientation uh, that's geared to reality, that's geared to compounding, uh, this is a very, very, very good time to be in the space. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, yeah, the first, in the next year or so, it looks very likely that we will see that recession. And that's when you think it could, from, I guess, from a price perspective, most of these commodities could be negative. But then after that, and after the, when we get the rebounds, there's just going to be this increased demand with without the supply, basically. Uh, and I think for speculators, uh, and your audience need to determine if they're speculators or not, that the industry and society itself uh, are willing to pay eye-popping prices for high-quality discoveries. High-quality discoveries are few and far between. And I would describe, uh, you know, a high-quality discovery as one with at least $10 billion U.S. billion in in-situ recoverable reserves and resources. 
But I think even despite the recession, that speculators who participate in successful efforts in exploration will make a lot of money uh, in the same way that they did in the early part of the decade of the 90s uh, or in the uh, early part of the decade of the 2000s. <clears throat> you can have a malaise in resource markets and people will still pay up for discoveries simply because the discovery pipeline, uh, the discovery financing pipeline and the work pipeline has been attenuated for 30 years. Yeah. So, so is there a way to sort of, I guess, fill that supply gap or is it just impossible to catch up to the increase in demand that's required? Well, I, I think we'll surprise ourselves because there was an exploration boomlet in the period 2002 to 2008 or nine. Uh, in my experience, it usually takes 10 or 15 years of focused exploration to begin to deliver results. Uh, and, and I believe that we're starting to see that result uh, in certain places. Uh, an example would be in Guyana, where there's been focused gold exploration for 15 years, and now there are two or three discoveries. So I, I suspect that sooner than we think, we'll have at least a boomlet rather than a boom in exploration. Uh, I, I think something else that holds promise is the worldwide boom in uh, lithium exploration, which at least in certain terrains uh, pegmatite terrains uh, will probably yield discoveries of materials other than lithium. I, I remember 30 years ago when there was a sort of a boomlet uh, in uh, platinum exploration. And while it didn't yield many discoveries of platinum, it yielded some very interesting nickel discoveries. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if the current round of uh, lithium exploration will yield uh, discoveries of materials that like uh, pegmatite terrains. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I, I guess as well, there's potential for innovation. So maybe some of these, hopefully uh, a lot of these technologies require le less minerals moving forward as there are these uh, innovations. Well, I think that's very true. Uh, I think that as we see a period of rising commodity prices, we will see better fabrication technologies. I don't think that'll happen immediately. I think it'll be 10 years. I, I suspect that it will occur simultaneously with the European Union and the American Congress trying to put on price controls <laughs> on minerals. Uh, usually uh, a wonderful indicator of the end of a trend is government stupidity. And I suspect that you will see innovation in fabrication, which will lead to less demand for minerals over time. I suspect that the price of minerals will have to be substantially higher than it is today uh, in order for that need to conserve or the appearance of that need to conserve to occur. And remember, too, that uh, technological innovation takes time. There hasn't been a lot of investment in technological in, uh, innovation around natural resources because natural resources relative to the prices of other goods and services in the economy are historically cheap uh, and innovation doesn't tend to occur uh, without a need for it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess if we go into the specific commodities, which ones do you think there will be maybe that the greatest impact of this supply demand gap? Um, well, I think maybe in the very the next five years, term, you're starting to see it in the uranium business. Uranium was priced well below the incentive price uh, for current production or new production for a very long time. And the consequence of that is that the market has played catch up. 
while the market in terms of the spot market has played catch up, what you'll notice too is the increasing predominance of the term market over the spot market in uranium. This is important because it gives both consumers and producers some certainty as to the price of the commodity. And it allows project developers the ability to finance projects while guaranteeing a reasonable rate of return for their shareholders. So I suspect in the very near term, uh, where you're going to see the move is in the shares of the second tier uh, uranium developers. You've seen the uranium price move already. You've seen the shares of Cameco, the Bellwether move. You've seen the uranium ETF, uh, at least the Sprott one, which I follow. Uh, up fairly substantially, but I think that boom has uh, room to continue. I uh, believe that oil and gas prices, particularly North American natural gas prices, will continue to be uh, very strong. Interest in the sector has been weak because the big thinkers in the world, the Bidens, the Trudeaus, the Merkels, uh, that noted energy physicist Greta Thornburg, uh, all of those people, have suggested that the oil industry will be out of business in 2030 or 20, 2035. My suspicion is that peak oil demand will occur about 2060 and taper off very slowly from there. This isn't a point of view that you hear repeated an awful lot, but I'll leave an interesting statistic with you and your listeners. Uh, humankind has now invested almost $5 trillion in alternative energy production. And we've reduced the market share uh, of fossil fuels from a high of 82% all the way down to 81%. A 5 trillion US dollar investment has reduced the market share of conventional fossil fuels by 1% over 40 years. Meanwhile, there are a billion people on the planet who have no access to primary electricity. There are 2 billion people for whom energy and electricity are either intermittent uh, or uh, unaffordable. So demand for all forms of energy will continue strong, not for my lifetime, but rather for your lifetime. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess if we go to more of the base metals, I guess battery as well, and then um, precious, do you see there being sort of some winners and, and losers in, in that area in the next five years? Yeah, I, I think mostly winners. Uh, precious metals tend to do well when people are concerned about the efficacy of savings products denominated in fiat currencies uh, and their maintenance of purchasing power. Anybody who isn't concerned about the maintenance of purchasing power in long government bonds, I think needs their head examined. Uh, quantitative easing, negative real interest rates, debt and deficits, uh, and the impact on pensions from the degradation of principle in the long-term bond market, to me, guarantee, they don't suggest, they guarantee the diminution of purchasing power of uh, savings products denominated in fiat currencies. I don't see any particular way around it. I'm not trying to say it has to happen tomorrow, but I'm trying to say that anybody who would, as an example, buy a U.S. 10-year treasury paying, what, 4.8% in a currency where I believe the real purchasing power deterioration is closer to 7% than the CPI stated 3.9% needs their head examined. They're bad at math. Um, 
I, I wish what I was saying wasn't so. Uh, gold is usually insurance uh, against chaos, and my life is pretty good. I'm not looking forward to chaos, uh, but I prefer to own it. Uh, as for the industrial materials, the simple ascent of humankind, the fact that there are 8 billion people on Earth, and the fact particularly that in the last 40 years, we have increased the material living standards of the poorest 3 billion people on Earth markedly uh, and allowed those people uh, more access to material well-being, which means we've increased demand for industrial materials. As those trends continue, uh, as there are more people on Earth and as the people on Earth uh, aspire to higher material living standards, the demand for all ranges of materials increases. The one where the increase seems most obvious is copper. Not merely for electric vehicles, which might appeal to you and I, but rather for the billion people on Earth who have no access to primary electricity and will have it within 20 years. We have not made enough investment in copper to maintain the supplies for current demand, much less the increase in demand that I think we'll see over the next five years, 10 years, and 20 years. So then do you think that will just require, you know, when the prices get high enough, people, they'll try their price caps, they won't work. There's going to be this massive investment in really trying just to make, basically trying to deliver the copper as soon as possible. Do you see well, that? Well, certainly markets work, but markets lag. Uh, you won't see uh, the public realization of the crisis until the crisis is on people. And I don't know what price level that will be. Uh, I, it's pretty obvious to me that the big copper deposits in the world, with a couple exceptions, sort of look like me, uh, well past their prime, uh, 70 years of age. Look at uh, Bingham Canyon, the biggest mine in the United States. I think it's 160 years old. The Chuki Kamara, the uh, biggest mine in Chile, uh, 115 years old. Uh, the newcomer, Escondida, is 40 years old. Humankind is living on deposits that are well past their prime. Uh, and with the exception of things like Komoa Kakula, uh, Ivanhoe's wonderful uh, discovery and development in Congo, the, the world is woefully short of new deposits and new discoveries that will be required to replace these aging monsters. It is estimated by the U.S. Geological Survey that one Bingham Canyon a year needs to be discovered for the next 10 years. <laughs> and in bad English, colloquial English, it ain't going to happen. Uh, certainly, the result of high prices will be more exploration, more investment, and more conservation. Markets always work. But markets are messy. Uh, people don't like the way they work. And, and the impacts uh, are always a lag. It is very true that the cure for low prices is low prices. Uh, low prices stimulate demand and they constrain supply. Similarly, the, the cure for high prices <clears throat> is high prices. They stimulate conservation, they stimulate supply. But it takes years in a capital-intensive cyclical industry for the market to work on either the supply side or the demand side. It's scary to think. So you mentioned a really interesting point. And so I guess the question before where you're talking about how, uh, I guess, with the, with the T-bill, and if we look at the 60-40 portfolio, it's really been uh, a benefit. It's really benefited over the past 30 years, but there's the risk at the moment of, uh, you know, with inflation remaining high, uh, yields 
remaining high and increasing, the potentially the, the value of the bonds could go down. So do you see the uh, people starting to like maybe diversify more, just going away from these bonds into precious metals as, as a way to, as you said, sort of balance their portfolio a bit more? Interestingly, not yet. I, I think we've been schooled in the last 40 years, which I think were the most benign economic period in human history, <clears throat> not to be afraid. Uh, interest rates, both nominal and real, fell for 40 years. The benefits of globalization, the benefits of inclusion in the workplace, the benefits of demographics, all of those things conspired to make the last 40 years a wonderful time to be an investor and to be a consumer. Uh, I'm not saying that the world's going into a hell in a handbasket, but I think we're entering a period of time that's more challenging. When your expectation of the future is set by your experience in the past, our experience in the past has been pretty unchallenging. And I think uh, as a species, or at least as investors, uh, that we're less prepared for the future than we ought to be. Many times when I give talks like this, particularly to people of your generation <clears throat> who haven't really experienced the trying times that might have existed, say, in World War II uh, or in the period of the 1970s, uh, there is a sense that things only get better. And I suspect in the very long term, that's true. Things only get better. But there is also, I think, less fear, less experience. As an example, a younger audience might question uh, my view of inflation. They may say, well, the CPI stated rate of inflation is barely at three. What's the concern if I'm getting 5% uh, in a treasury security? I would suggest that the CPI is a flawed measure of inflation. It's a consumer price index. It is, quote, hedonistically adjusted which means that if the big thinkers that compile the index think that an item is more valuable than it used to be, that they adjust its relevance to the index. But much more importantly, Anthony, the CPI doesn't include tax. The largest expense suffered by most households in the developed world is tax. And the idea that they don't include tax in what purports to be a cost of living index is borderline fraud. Uh, it's insane. The way I informally uh, calculate the depreciation of my purchasing power in U.S. dollars is that the, dep the depreciation of purchasing power, including tax, uh, means that my savings are losing uh, purchasing power at about 7% compounded annually. The idea then that I'm happy about receiving a 5% yield in a currency that's declining in terms of purchasing power by 7% compounded means that my return on capital employed in savings is a minus 2% a year compounded, not particularly attractive. And you put your finger uh, on really the death trap, which is to say the... <clears throat> ability of portfolios for pensions and endowments, as an example, to meet their obligations 25 or 30 years hence. There's two problems there. The yield that they're getting from their long-term debt instruments is insufficient to maintain the purchasing power at the same time that the rising interest rates are lowering the capitalized value of the investments that they already have. So as an example, a university endowment that bought to uh, treasuries three years ago to yield 
finds themselves now underwater in terms of the capitalized value of the corpus of their endowment down by 30% (laughs) at the same time that the income is insufficient to maintain the promised payouts. Uh, This for your generation should be their primary concern. Yep, and that's where precious metals come in. Uh, so would you say, do you think gold and silver, they're going to sort of act quite similarly? Do you think there might be disparities between sort of how they react moving forward? My experience, Anthony, and I can't tell you why, is that gold moves first in a precious metals bull market. I suspect because there's a fear buyer, a motivated fear buyer. And when the precious merit narrative gets established uh, among the investing public, then silver uh, perhaps because of its lower unit price, begins to move further and, and faster. Uh, silver, the beginnings of the move in the silver market are usually an indication of the fact that we're halfway through a precious metals bull market. I'm not sure why that is. I just know from observation that it is. Speculators should note that the most volatile asset class uh, in that sector are the silver stocks simply because the market capitalization of viable or threatening silver equities is so small that when the generalist investor warms to the narrative, there literally is not enough market cap to accommodate the flow of funds that comes into the sector. I I remember coming into the mining investment uh, field in the 1970s and watching, as an example, a little penny dreadful called Coeur d'Alene Mines go from 10 cents a share to $65 a share. Uh, I, I was too new to the sector to know to participate. But the next time silver ran, uh, I personally was involved in both Silver Standard and Pan American, which ran from 72 cents and 50 cents respectively to over $40 respectively in six or seven short years. Those were very pleasant experiences, obviously. Oh, that's amazing. I think so. Rick, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I guess my last question is what is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Well, I guess use common sense, uh, which is particularly uncommon. Uh, I, I'd like to visit with your listeners too, if they'd like. Any of your listeners who care uh, can get a free portfolio evaluation from me. No obligation. Simply go to ruleinvestmentmedia.com, list your natural resource stocks. Please, no tech stocks. Please, no crypto. Please, no pot stocks. Leave an old guy to what he does well. Uh, I will rate your portfolio, each each item, one to ten, one being best, ten being worst. And I'll comment on individual issues if I think my comments might have value. Perfect. So that would be the best place people can find your work. Uh, Absolutely. On the website. I can personalize uh, it for you. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds really good. And I think you have a seminar coming up as well, do you? I do. We have a uh, royalty and streaming boot camp coming up for those people who aren't familiar with our boot camps. They're eight or nine hour long online presentations. Uh, The transcripts and the tapes, of course, will be available to subscribers for 12 months afterwards. If you're interested in royalty and streaming, which is to say the lowest risk, highest quality form of natural resource investment available, this is probably a can't miss event. Uh, I take all of the risk out of it. This, like all other uh, educational products from Rural Investment Media, comes with a gold-plated money-back guarantee. $99 admission charge. 
If you don't feel you got your $99 worth, simply email me, no questions asked, I'll give you the $99 back. So all the financial risk is mine. Great. Sounds good. So yeah, I'll put that in the description below, but thanks again for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.